Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. Some things are predictable about Sunday morning for all of us, but one particular joy I get each week is uh, Noah back there asking me if he can help on an illustration. Well, I told him I didn't have any illustrations today, and Harley and him debated back and forth who got to help on the illustration. They did paper, rock, scissors. Who won that? You won? All right, come here, Noah. All right. I got a giveaway this morning, so this is not an illustration. Just you got to help me give away one of my favorite books outside the Bible. Probably my favorite book is New Morning Mercies. It's a, a daily devotional. If he brings it to you and you already have it, just pass it on to somebody else. All right, so Noah, I was trying to think about how to, how to best give this away. And so I'm going to put it on your shoulders here, all right? You can't ask for me for help. You just got to go and do this yourself, right? All right, you know what, you know what the difference between an adult and a child is, right? All right, so here's your, here's your mission today, all right? To walk out and give this to the youngest looking adult in the room, okay? okay. All right, so go for it. Youngest looking adult in the room. That's going to be interesting, right? So we're all going to watch him for a few minutes. You've got to hustle out. This has got to be quick, all right? Youngest looking adult. You, my wife's right there, by the way. Um, be a good move. We're back in Ephesians chapter 3. Yeah, I might as well give this up, all right? He's, what is he? He's going to give it to his mom, maybe. That's all right. Oh, there you go. She's an adult. All right, Lane. All right. Give Noah a hand. All right, thank you, Noah. We're back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and before we get into the text, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this church body. We thank you that we can come here today and we can laugh together, we can cry together, we can encourage one another, we can lift each other up in prayer, we can hear your word and to be motivated and, and just propelled to go out of here to make a difference, God. And I pray that today, as we look into Timothy again, that these words will resonate in our hearts the spirit that's in the believers will uh, take these words and make them real and, and true to us in our daily life, God. I thank you for just the, all the blessings that you give to us, God, and give us wisdom as we navigate during this time in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. I was about the age of 32, and I was youth pastor at a church in Dallas, Texas, and our church had been without a lead pastor for about nine months. And if you've ever been in a church that did not have a pastor, it can be a really, really difficult time 
But to make matters worse for us, there is this church plant that had started up directly across the street from us meeting in a public high school auditorium. And I, I say a church plant, but they started with about 500 people from a college ministry that was down the street not too far away from us. And so right off the bat, you know, they had this incredible amount of momentum, this energy, this new startup church was happening, and our church was really bleeding. People were leaving during the time without a pastor. There was a leadership void, and us on the pastoral staff, you could say we were, we were really, really discouraged in this, in this situation. And uh, there was just a steady rotation of preachers just coming in and out of our church and preaching each Sunday, and our staff was kind of carrying on doing the pastoral things that we needed to do. And the elders realized they needed to provide stability, not just stability on Sunday morning for a consistent preacher of the word, but also consistency for the staff and provide leadership for the staff. Well, enter a man named Neil Ashcraft. Neil, I would guess at the time I was 32, I would guess him to be well into his 70s at the time. And not only was, was he brought in to preach on Sunday morning, he was also there to provide leadership and maturity to the pastoral staff. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, okay? I, at the time, I thought that this probably wasn't the best move. I, I looked around, saw the church across the street. They had this six-foot-five preacher. I mean, he was a good-looking guy, good, great communicator. I thought, man, we need, we need somebody young and cool and hip to, you know, to really help us draw people in and, you know, as we compete, so to speak, against this other church. 32 years old is what I was. From my mindset, this was not the best of moves. Boy, was I wrong. Not because Neil Ashcraft brought in these incredible church growth strategies. He didn't. And Neil Ashcraft didn't come in and tell us how to set up cool environments. He didn't. What he did was provide this incredible presence about him and he brought in everything that I wasn't. Soft-spoken, completely self-controlled, mature, wise. And during the time period that we had him there at North Highlands Bible Church, it was an incredible time. In fact, not too many months ago, I called him up just to check on him. His wife died a few years ago. He's still serving the Lord in a church there in Dallas. Probably pushing close to 90 at this point. Maybe 90 already. And so during that time, I realized a couple things. One was, we need role models, plain and simple. We need people to model our faith after. And in fact, another book that Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says this, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Paul says, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Well, I can imagine people in the church looking at Paul and saying, yeah, we can get on board with imitating you, Paul. You're an apostle, man. You're, you're just like this incredible figure in the church. But look, Paul adds to this. He says, imitate us according to the example you have in us. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about Paul and he's talking about Timothy. And so he extends this beyond apostolic leadership and he goes outside of that to Timothy, a pastor, young pastor. Imitate. He says to imitate those. So a critical element for spiritual growth is having spiritual role models. And the leaders worth following is a leader who is following Jesus. Leaders who are worth following are leaders who are following Jesus. And that is why God has given us 
church elders, to be an example to the believers, to lead the household of God. And so in chapter 3 today, we're going to look at the qualifications of church elders. Next week, we'll look at deacons. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul says to Timothy, look around. Who's aspiring to be leader? There has to be this strong desire among God's people for a man to step up to say, I desire to lead this congregation. There has to be not only a desire, there has to be a sense of calling to this person. It's not just a matter of being nominated and being voted upon. The Holy Spirit anoints the elders within a church. How do I know that? Acts 20, 28, writing to the elders at the church in Ephesus, or, or praying with the elders at the church of Ephesus, Paul says this, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You, did you get that? He says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So not only does a man desire to be an elder of a church, but the Holy Spirit works in the process and appoints those who he desires. Some for the right reasons, possibly some he puts in for the wrong reasons to teach us things. So the church we read about in the Bible was organized in a very simple way. The general pattern was at least two or more men who were qualified were overseeing a local congregation or church. And there were several terms in script there are several terms in scripture used to describe this position of authority within the church. In this text, Paul uses the word overseer. Interesting, because Paul picks out a word that was very familiar. It's not a spiritual word. Paul uses a common word in their society, and it's a term for those who would even be a civic leader or a religious leader in their community. The equivalent term would be the term elder, which is what we use and what is used in other places in Scripture, which would be more of a Jewish context that would be used within the synagogues. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul encourages the elders to shepherd the church by exercising oversight, the verb form of the word we just read, overseer. And so you see this word shepherd is equated to the word pastor that we use today. So pastor, overseer, elder, all these are used interchangeably throughout Scripture for one office. And at Grace, just a little bit of information for you if you're newer here at Grace, or maybe you've forgotten how we're structured and how we're organized. At Grace, our lay leaders, those who aren't paid pastoral staff, our lay leaders are called ruling elders, and they're elected from among the active membership of our church. Ruling lay elders have full-time careers outside of this church, but they make significant sacrifices in order to shepherd and care for this church body. And so and the elder board technically called the session, consists of the elders and myself as the leader, senior pastor, and all members are entitled to a vote at the elder board meetings. And so the elders get together, we get together at least monthly to pray for church members, to discuss pastoral issues, to make decisions regarding the future of our church. And what's great about the, my experience here over the last eight years at Grace Church is most of the time, we never even have to come to a vote on a matter. They're just as 
consensus is driven by the Holy Spirit over the decisions that we make. In the case where there's not consensus, the rule that we usually go by is, let's table this for a month or two, let's go and pray about the matter, let's come back together and see if God has changed hearts. There's occasions where we do vote on a matter, but most of the time that's very, very rare. And so that is how our church is structured according to what the Bible calls overseers, pastors, or elders. And so if a man senses a calling to be an elder, what should he do? He should go to this passage and a few other passages in Scripture and look at the qualifications. Let's go back to verse 1. Paul says, this, is, this saying is trustworthy. What is he saying there? He's like, this is a big deal, all right? Pay attention. This is really, really important. If someone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, let me stop here for a second and say, some of you may be tempting, tempted to check out at this point because you're like, well, first of all, I don't desire the position of elder, and I probably never will desire it, or I'm a female, so I'm not going to be an elder at Grace Church. We talked about that last week. Go back and watch that message if you weren't here. So how is this relevant to me? Well, a couple things. The majority of what is written here isn't just for those who are called to be office holders. God desires his children all to be mature, and they all to look like what's being described here today. And so please don't check out. Use this as a guide through the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit to allow him to speak into your life and say, do I measure up to this? Why not? And then secondly, today begins our nomination process for elders. And so if you look around our membership and you see someone, you think, wow, this person, wow, they just impressed me with their spiritual maturity, with their leadership. They're in my K group. I know them well. And I really think they should be a leader, an elder here at Grace Church. You can nominate that person. And you'll be getting an email actually about 11.30 this morning on your, on your phones or on your computer at home. And you can nominate someone. We'll also be sending this out on regular intervals over the next few weeks. And so you have a chance to actually participate in the leadership here. So let's look at the qualifications. He says, verse 2, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. All right, we're going to camp here for a second. Don't panic, all right, because we're going to spend more time on this, much more time on this one than the other ones. And if you see the list, you're like, well, we're never going to get through. Well, this is a catch-all, and this is one that uh, really uh, he's going to go on to describe in more detail, but above reproach says so much. I love how Jeremy Rennie, uh, his quote in the book Church Elders, which our, all our elders have read, I'm going to read this for you. Being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with such acts. So, striving to be above reproach through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the working of the Word, should be something that we should all be after and pursuing. But it's vital for church elders. It's vital that those who are elder, in elder positions in the church model the gospel message that there's truly a different way to be human than what we see in our culture today. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live lives that are different than the world around us. And it falls in line with what Johnny was saying and so much more that Scripture teaches. That we don't get on social media and make a mess of things. We don't argue and fight and get angry and throw a fit because we don't get our way. We're an example to the believers. We're above reproach. 
Now, above reproach definitely doesn't mean without sin, and it doesn't mean that you're not in process, all right? If, if that was the case, then I would walk off the stage, sit down, and ask somebody else to come up here. But you know what? Nobody would come up because nobody would meet the qualifications, right? It's not meaning that you're above sin, you're without sin. But it means that any accusation that is brought against this person must not be found to be true. Must not be found to be true. The elder is to be above reproach because he's a very public figure and has a weighty calling of being an example to the flock, an example to the world that he lives in. And it's so damaging and destructive to the church when elders and pastors stumble and embarrass, make an embarrassment of the gospel. I grew up in churches where, unfortunately, pastors, elders, were held up to a, a standard that was almost godlike. And there, and there was so much abuse of power, so much abuse of control. Maybe some of you have been in churches like that. In fact, my earliest memory, true memory of my pastor was the fact that he was arrested in a neighboring city for soliciting a prostitute. And then, to make matters worse, there seemed to be so much evidence to the fact that this was true. I mean, it's just incredible what was out in the papers and what was, what was out there, even the things that he admitted to. Yet, the church assembled and voted whether they had lost any kind of faith in him or not, and 95% of the church said, we've lost no faith in this guy. All right? And, and, and so that's the kind of abuse that I saw growing up. And it was this culture where the pastor or the elder was untouchable, and there was this, this ruling by fear. And the, kind of the way they did that was they said, if you go against the man of God, and I just put this up here because I wanted you to kind of see this was the culture we, we grew up with, the world's greatest men, all right? In fact, the guy on the left, the pastor on the left, um, his own daughter wrote, wrote this about him. She says, my father used power and oppression to make church members like subservient zombies. He's, by using this, God is going to get you. Don't go against the man of God. And so there was all this abuse of power. And these men were definitely, did not fit the qualification of being above reproach. So many of them. Obviously, there were many exceptions to that. And so when Paul was writing about choosing people for eldership, he didn't say, pick the guy who's the savvy, charismatic leader. He didn't say, pick the man who's super successful in business. He looks to character, something that doesn't matter much in our culture anymore, right? He looks to character, to integrity of the leader. In fact, a pastor, I read this, a pastor in Chicago in the 1940s um, who pastored at uh, Moody Bible College, Moody Bible Church, um, a guy in the community there who was an agnostic, who um, had really just fallen into this deep depression about life, there's no purpose to life, and he, he thought, you know what, I'm just going to end it all, I'm just going to commit suicide. Well, he thought to himself, if I could find one pastor, a single pastor who lived out his faith, I would listen to him. I would listen to what he had to say. And so he came across this, this gentleman who's the, who's the pastor and president at Moody Bible Institution. And he, and he hired a private investigator to begin following this guy around to examine his life. And you know what he found? The private investigator returned and said, this gentleman's above reproach. I can find nothing but integrity in this man. The guy goes to church, 
the next Sunday, he puts his faith in Christ. His daughter ends up going to Moody Bible Institute and graduating. What an incredible story. It shows you that the world is looking for integrity in ministers, in elders, and pastors. I read another story about an ordination, which is a time when a young pastor or even an elder is examined for ministry. And usually a group of pastors join in on that and begin to ask them questions and so on. Well, in this particular ordination, it had been going on for a great deal of time, and the oldest pastor in the room, he had not said a single word. And they were arguing back and forth about the finer points of theology. And finally, after about an hour or two, the older pastor stops the conversation. He says, hey, go get his wife. What? Go, go get his wife. Bring his wife in. His wife comes in. He says, is this man gentle with you and your, ki- and your kids? Is he a peacemaker? Does he care? Does he love? Does he respect you? Is he free of greed? Does he keep away from addictions? Does he pastor your home? And she said, yes, he absolutely does. And he says, let's ordain the guy. Let's do it. Character matters. What we do in private matters. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Look, examine, see what kind of man this is. And then he begins to list out some specifics. And he says, the husband of one wife. Now, this is very debated, and if you have different versions of the Bible, it might read different ways. Let me give you kind of the three most common ways that this is generally received. And I'll tell you the one that I land on that I think it's what it's talking about. It could be talking about polygamy. Is this guy a polygamist? Does he have more than one wife? All right, that was pretty rare in the Roman Empire at this time. There were areas where it still was going on, so it could be possibly what Paul was referring to there. Secondly, he must not have more than one living wife, so he can't be divorced and remarried. Many churches take that stance. Here, Grace, we fall on this one. He must be true and faithful to his wife. He's a one-woman kind of man. He's a one-woman kind of man. And so when you look at this man, he's not out in the community flirting, trying to woo women. He's committed completely and totally to his wife. He's faithful sexually to his wife. His character shows that he's completely committed to her. That's what God is looking for. Now, clearly, when we interview or examine someone for elder, if they have been divorced in the past, there's information that should come up to know what led to that, what caused that, you know, why did that was the decision make to make sure there's not a pattern of behavior there. But grace does have and allows someone who's been divorced to be an elder. It's not the unpardonable sin that you can never move on in the Christian life again if you've been divorced. Some churches look like at it that way pretty much. In fact, I got a great call the other day. You guys remember my friend Jeff Oldham, who's been here quite a few times? Well, Jeff, you remember he was a, a public school principal, and he fell into deep immorality. I mean, just affair after affair with women. His wife separated. Well, I met him. He came to Christ. I baptized him. And a few years later, he became a youth pastor. He left that, went to Belize to be a missionary. And then he came back to the United States a few years back, and he's been working at Texas Tech University uh, for about the last five or six years. Well, I got a call the other day. He had, Jeff had told me it was coming from a, an, an elder of a church in Lubbock and asking me for a reference for Jeff. And I said this, I said, 
You're going to think I'm describing Jesus here when I'm describing Jeff. But let me tell you, that's not where he came from. 20 years ago, this guy was a wreck. And God supernaturally worked in his heart and his life using various people to bring him where he is today. And I was able to even allude to the, the, the struggles he had 20 years ago and the sin he had 20 years ago. But I said, that's not who Jeff is now. He's a one-woman man. He loves his wife. He's been faithful to his wife. Well, they hired him for the position at the church. He starts November 1st. I'm so thrilled for him. That's what Paul is getting at. Is this guy faithful and committed? Does he have a wondering eye? Or does he truly, truly esteem his wife and looks to her? Is he a one-woman man? And then next he says, sober-minded. Is he clear-headed? Is he observant? Self-controlled? Respectable? Is he orderly? Discipline? Controls his impulses and his emotions? Let me just say this. For everyone in here, regardless of whether you ever want to be an elder or not, does anybody know about the inner battle that you're fighting? Does anybody know that? The war that rages inside of you? I don't care if you've been a believer for 50 years or five minutes. The war continues to rage in each one of us. The draw of the flesh, the world, the devil, constantly pull at us. And so many guys go through this life, and women as well, allowing nobody to see their hearts and know their hearts. And they guard the details of their hearts so closely because they're afraid if this gets out or anybody finds out, they could use it against me or, or they could take advantage of it or I would just be so ashamed and embarrassed. I think if someone desires the office of an elder, there has to be a certain level of just opening up and accountability in these matters. There has to be some transparency because it's so easy to, be, to live a secret life and have this other side that's completely different than the public persona. Now, I'll talk more about that in a second, but I encourage everyone in here, be in a fight club, have, have somebody who's discipling you and can know you and ask you the tough questions. We all need that. None of us are above that. Then in verse 2, he says, also, he says, hospitable. Literally, that means a love for strangers. A love for strangers. Now, this was critical in the early church because the gospel message was flourishing and spreading, and if it wasn't for Christians in areas of the empire to open their homes and provide supplies and food, then the gospel would not have spread the way that it did. But it, the, the application for us is, ever, is, is there as well. Are you looking out for the stranger, those who come into our church? I read a few years ago, remember a note from somebody who came and visited our church? And they're like, I, I came here for like three months and nobody talked to me. All right? I hope that's not the case. And as elders, we should be leading the charge of reaching out and looking for the stranger among us. But it goes further than that. It's, it's reaching out. It's opening our home. It's opening our lives up. I love what Tim Chester writes. He says, hospitality involves, involves welcoming, creating space, listening, paying attention, and providing. And he says meals, having meals, having food together, slows things down. Some of us don't like that. We like to get things done. But meals force you to be people-oriented instead of task-oriented. Sharing a meal is not the only way to build relationships, but it is the number one on the list. Very practical, very easy. Just hospitality, and it's not just for elders, it's not just for deacons, it's for everyone. Then he says the next one, which is different than any other list you'll find in Scripture for any other leader in the church, 
He says, able to teach. This is really the primary difference between the elder qualifications and deacon qualifications we'll talk about next week. The ability to effectively verbally communicate the gospel and biblical doctrine. This doesn't necessarily mean you have to be able to stand up and preach in front of a crowd. It could be leading a K group, leading a life prep U class, and so forth. But it is a person who's able to teach the word with a degree of authority about it. They know, they've studied, they've learned, they've meditated, they've read, and they can pass it on to other people. And then verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Think about this idea of drunkenness for a second and how he ties this in to not violent. I, I think that it's there because drunkenness destroys people's lives, but it also draws them into other sins, particularly being violent. And elders should be known not for losing their cool with anger, being hot-tempered, going off swearing and gossiping even, but they're able to control themselves. And that's the opposite of what alcohol does to us. Don't be drunk with wine. Leads to excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to control instead of running, running to the numbing effects of drugs and alcohol. So he cautions against that. Be influenced strongly by the Spirit, not by alcohol. And then verse 3 says, And then not a lo lover of money. Don't be chasing the culture's perception of success. The gospel changes us. Don't seek happiness and materialism. We lead the way in living for the gospel, not living for money. Now, nobody looks at money and says, I love money, and they like green, the green stuff, right? You just love the power that money gives, the luxuries that money gives, the comfort that money gives. That's what we love about money. So nobody in here says, well, I love money. No, you don't love money. You love what money does for you. It says elders should not be guilty of being lovers of money where they put everything else aside because I'm pursuing this and that's what matters most. If I get time to care for the church and the body, then I can probably work that in. Verse 4, he must manage, this is where it gets tough here, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Again, Jeremy Rennie says, both parenting and eldering are about guiding people toward maturity within a community context. Learn to shepherd God's family by shepherding yours first. I love that. Start with your family. Start with your home. The culture I grew up in, these guys were so good at getting up and wooing a crowd and getting a crowd excited and amen and hallelujah and jumping around all kinds of antics and crazy stuff. But their homes, for the most part, the pastors I knew, were in an absolute mess. There was no integrity. It was almost like they went and clocked in and did their thing, clocked out, went home, and just lived a totally different life. That can't be who elders are. Are you instructing your children at home about God's word and the gospel? Are you intentional with that? Or are you exasperating your children with harshness? Is the atmosphere of your home known for nurturing and being orderly, or is it toxic and chaotic? What's your home situation? Then verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation 
of the devil. What this tells me is no matter how passionate this guy seems to be about the gospel, no matter how impressive of a person he is, no matter what he says, this person has to be observed over a period of time. Because as I alluded to earlier, we can impress people for a while, right? We can put on a show and have a secret life and we're showing something different. But over a period of time, your true self begins to come out. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever been around people like that? Where they say something and you're like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Well, that's who you are, you know? It's, it's coming out. It comes out. A pattern of, of who you are will eventually start to show itself. And that's why it's important that you don't just grab a guy and make him an elder or a leader in the church too quickly. You want to observe. You want to see his heart. And then verse 7, he says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, unbelievers, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. All right, let's, before we talk about the qualification there, let's talk about that last phrase. Into a snare of the, of, of the devil. If you're following along in the app or in your Bible, look at verse 6 again. It says, puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And now this verse, into the snare of the devil. What's that about? Paul is showing Timothy the seriousness of being an elder and a leader in a church. He says, this is a spiritual battle. And when you become a leader, when you put yourself up as a spiritual authority, get ready, right? Get ready. Satan has his eye on you. He's targeting you, and he's coming after you, and he's coming after your family, plain and simple. Why? Because one, he knows how easy it is to expose your hypocrisy because you're talking up here, but if you're living down here, it's going to be easy to destroy the sheep, harm the faith of the sheep, and cost the kingdom of God its reputation in the community. So he says, when the shepherd falls, the effect on the sheep is devastating. And the world is watching. Elders Sins are more hypocritical because the world knows that they hold to a higher standard. So don't think in this community that people don't know who you are. Don't think in this community that they don't know that you're an elder of this church, a pastor of this church, a pastoral staff of this church, a deacon in this church, or attend this church for that matter. People are watching. People know. Now, that should not be our motivation for sure, but that has to be part of the equation to realize that when I embarrass the gospel, when I embarrass the name of Jesus, not only does it reflect me and my family, but it reflects my church and ultimately the glory of God. People are watching. Reputation in the community matters. He says, be well thought about by outsiders. What is your reputation in the community? When people bring up your name, what, what kind of things are said about you? It matters. It matters. So in closing, 1 Peter again. 1 Peter 2, 25. Jesus is referred to as the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Shepherd and overseer. The pastor and the overseer. The elder of your souls. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the elders are under shepherds. They follow the lead shepherd by caring for 
you, the flock that God has called to him. And it's the job, just like Jesus does for us. He pastors our soul. He cares for our soul. It's our job as elders and pastors to care and protect you. Spiritually, we care for you. We protect you. We model maturity in the faith. We know the Word extensively. We're in the Word. We're studying the Word. We're memorizing the Word. We're meditating upon the Word. We know why we believe what we believe. We can defend the faith. And then we can teach it and explain it to other people. Above reproach. Above reproach. So, application. Head, heart, and hands. Head. This is the kind of maturity God wants to produce in all of His people. So don't sit here and think, wow, that was a good talk about the elders. I'm like evaluating them in my mind and thinking, do they live up to that? Nope. Turn it around on yourself, okay? Where are you? Are you above reproach? What, do the, what does the community say about you? What are they talking about? Do you know the word? Are you in the word? Because you are a priest. The, high, the priesthood of the believer, that you are a priest, that God has entrusted in you the Holy Spirit, and then by his power, you are to live as light and salt to this world. Are you doing that? Is this the maturity that he's producing in you? The heart. How is this accomplished? Every one of our elders would tell you this. Abide in Christ. That's where it happens. Character is changed as your heart is changed. And there's no shortcuts to that. You have to abide in Christ. Abide in the word. Let the word of God change you. It will make you someone different. God will begin to chisel and work. And over time, you will reflect him more and more in your life. But it only comes as we abide in him. And then hands. Pray. Very practically. Pray for our elders. Pray for our pastors. If we really believe the word that we are a target of Satan, then we covet your prayers. You know, it matters who becomes president, but probably in this local community, it probably matters more the way that your elders live their life in this community and reflect the name of Jesus in this community. And so, as you're praying for the big picture, pray for the small picture. Pray for your church elders, your leaders. Pray that God will just give us this this heart and the grace to drive us to the Word and to prayer. And out of that, we can care and nourish and love and see you mature the way that God wants you. We want to be role models. We want to be examples. Follow us when we're following Jesus. When you see me mess up and screw up, it will happen. Don't follow me then. Talk to me. Come to me. Follow me as I follow Jesus. In prayer today, i just like for our staff, our pastoral staff, Roy, uh, Mitch, I don't know if you went to the children's ministry, if he's here, um, and Jeremy, um, come up here, and then our elders, our lay elders, to come up here that are here today. And just stand up here in front of me. And I, and I want, as I pray for these guys, let's go, uh, let's go guys. Um, as I pray for these guys, I want you to pray for them as well. And just ask God to just anoint them and to give them a, a, just a, an incredible burden for you. And there are a few, I know Allison's here, Stephen, uh, they kind of share duty on, the, on their child. Pray for her there as well, as you think, and Stephen, and any of the wives that are here. It's a tremendous, tremendous pressure upon them as well in this leadership role. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the men who are standing in front of me. 
I thank you for the calling upon their life, that you gave them the desire to be an elder of Grace Church. You put within them this overwhelming burden to care for your flock, to nurture your flock, and to teach your flock the word. And God, I pray you'll protect them, protect their homes, protect their lives, their private lives. God, guard their integrity. And may they live through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the guys who are out today for various reasons and vacations and out of town, God. I pray for them as well. God, I just ask as they watch today that they will remember the high calling that you've given them. And God, just for our wives in particular, just even something that a lady said to me this morning just reminded me of the incredible pressure that's upon our spouses. And God, I pray. I thank you for that word of encouragement she gave me, but I pray that we will love our wives as you love us and love your church. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to pay attention to strangers. Help us to care and love this body. I thank you for these men and the encouragement they are to me. God, I pray that you'll use Grace Church in a powerful way to go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.